I'm Silas Farley, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to Hear the Dance. As we continue this 75th anniversary year here at New York City Ballet, we turn to an in-depth exploration of the life and art of City Ballet founder George Balanchine through a conversation with his most recent biographer, Jennifer Homans. Jennifer is a scholar and former dancer. She trained at the School of American Ballet and danced professionally with Pacific Northwest Ballet in Seattle. She is the celebrated author of Apollo's Angels, A History of Ballet, and she is the founder and director of the Center for Ballet and the Arts at New York University, where she is also a distinguished scholar in residence. Her Balanchine biography, entitled Mr. B, George Balanchine's 20th Century, was published last fall by Random House and has garnered praise and awards from the National Book Critics Circle, Los Angeles Times, New York Times, and more. The book was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize and was awarded the Plutarch Award for Best Biography and the Marfield Prize for Arts Writing. I recently had the privilege of sitting down with Jennifer for a wide-ranging discussion about her research, writing, and perspectives on Balanchine and City Ballet's institutional history, all of which I trust will provide a rich context for this special 75th anniversary year. This episode is the first installment of my multi-part conversation with Jennifer. In this portion, we discussed Balanchine's formative early years in Russia, his westward journey through Weimar Germany, his time as ballet master and choreographer for Sergei Diaghilev's Ballet Russe, and his meeting Lincoln Kirstein, the man who would bring Balanchine to the United States. Let's listen in. Jennifer Homans, it is such a joy to have you here in the City Ballet Podcast Studio and to get to talk with you about your extraordinary book and your extraordinary research. And I have just admired you and loved your work and your Center for Ballet and the Arts from its beginning. So it is a just a total joy to have you. Welcome to the Hear the Dance Podcast. And Silas, thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here with you and with, with your whole community. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, Jennifer, why did you want to write Balanchine's biography, and why did you want to tell his story? It's probably the biggest subject in my life, George Balanchine. You know, it goes back to my own biography. When I was trained at the School of American Ballet as a young teenager, and um, I sort of was dropped into this Russian world that, um, you know, I was a kid from the Midwest, and I, I just didn't know anything. And mm. all of a sudden, I was there, and I was really overwhelmed by the experience. And then the experience of seeing Balanchine's work, this was in the 1970s, so mm. he was still alive, and mm -hmm. I was watching him rehearse and watching his dancers and, you know, going to the theater every night and, you know, sneaking in backstage, getting in any way I could, and I just, I became quite obsessed with it. And then I was fortunate enough to go on and dance with Maria Tallchief in Chicago. And so I, you know, I worked and met her. I, Suzanne Farrell invited me to come uh, to her island and, and study with her and with Paul Mejia, her then husband. And, uh, you know, and then I ended up at Pacific Northwest Ballet with, with Francia Russell, who another, you know, sort of great Balanchine stager and, and somebody who knew his work so well. So my life was just immersed in this subject. And, you know, when I stopped dancing when I was about 26 or 7, I, I thought I'm going to leave it all behind. Hmm. But 
I just couldn't. It was so powerful. So, you know, after I finished writing Apollo's Angels, I was looking for a new subject. Mm. And it just, it was like sitting like a spotlight in front of me, like this has, has got to be it. And then I think there was also a personal reason, which is another personal reason, which is that I, in the years just before I started, experienced some great loss myself, you know, the death of my husband and of my parents. And I was looking for... I found myself coming back to Balanchine over and over again, going to those ballets, hmm. returning to, you know, Serenade, to Agon, to um, just all of his work, Concerto Barocco, which felt like being in a church almost. And I just, you know, I, I started to understand already kind of intuitively that loss was a big theme in his life. So, you know, I, I was on a path to sort of discover who was this man who had such power over my life and the lives of so many other people? Yeah. And there had been a long line of notable Balanchine biographies in his own time. Bernard Taper had interviewed him and written that first biography. And then there's the one by Richard Buckle and Robert Gottlieb and Moira Schurer. And back in 2019, we even had one of the previous Balanchine biographers, Elizabeth Kendall, on this podcast to illuminate Balanchine's early life for us, which was fascinating. And what did you think had been illuminated well in those previous biographies? And then which facets of his life did you feel still needed further investigation? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, my book, like uh, like so many books, you know, stands on the shoulders of these books for sure. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I learned so much from them. And each one has its own particular power and strength. Uh, for example, Taper's book, you know, was written in the 1960s when Balanchine was alive. So mm-hmm. he was on the scene and he was watching. You know, the problem with that is that people were still alive. Mm. So I actually spent quite a lot of time in Taper's papers mm. and in his notes because he knew a lot more than he was able to say in that book because the people were still alive and he just wanted to be respectful of them. Um, you know, I learned a lot from Kendall's book and I drew a lot Um both from her sources, and I went back to some of her sources. And so, you know, all of these books fed into my understanding of Balanchine. But it felt to me like there had finally been time enough between his death and, you know, the present moment to look back and to really... I'm a trained historian in modern European history, and um, I wanted to, you know, sort of go into the archives and really try to sort of flesh out the history around his life and, and the ways in which it influenced his life. I, I subtitled the book George Balanchine's 20th Century because he absorbed so much of the 20th century, you know, starting with war and revolution and ending with, you know, the Cold War and the whole American scene. So it was an effort to sort of pull everything together in my own mind and also to um, sort of bring out the larger historical story. And how did you structure your research between interviews and archives and the other modes of of research? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I started thinking that I was going to, you know, focus mainly on archives because I'm a historian and, you know, memory is, is difficult. It's partial. It's it, we all rewrite our memories. So we mm. rewrite the past. Mm. But I immediately understood as I began that I had to start with people and that there were a lot of people that were still alive who had been present at various moments in his life. 
So, um, you know, I actually just made a very long list of the, the dancers, the musicians, the, anybody I could think of that, that had worked with him. And it was a very long list wow. of people that were alive. And I started with the oldest ones. And I just marched through it. And I interviewed over 200 people. And, I mean, that was there are many more I, I could have and would have liked to have interviewed. But I often went back to people many times as well mm-hmm. because I found that, you know, Balanchine, as he said, you know, without the dancers, I, the dancers don't exist. And even, you know, he wrote in one of his uh, uh, a note to somebody about the Taper biography, he wrote to Taper and he said, say more about the dancers. Mm-hmm. And I just, I thought, you know, partly the book is called Mr. B because that's what the dancers called him and the dancers mm. the dances didn't exist without them. So I saw the book very much as I went along as made of in part the tissue of the testimony of dancers. Mm. So I paid a lot of time to interviews. Um and then you know this is a long answer but then yep, I also great. spent a lot of time in archives because I was also interested in sort of the counter story that the archive would tell, which Mm. is not always the same story that the memory tells. Mm. Um, And so I I did work, you know, in archives uh, across in Russia and in uh, in Georgia, in um, across Europe and in the United States. So I spent a lot of time. And there was also a, a big cast of characters in this book. You know, I spent Huge. a lot of it's time. It's a cast of thousands. It's a cast of it's thousands, like, it's exactly. <laughs> so trying not to overwhelm the reader with too many characters, but, you know, Lincoln Kirstein, Jerome Robbins, uh, you know, we have to have certain people. And so I also had to do, I did a lot of um, primary research on, on these people as well as and also relied on on published books and materials. Um, And then I did things like I walked where Balanchine was when Mm -hmm. I could. You know, I went to St. Petersburg and I walked from his, the place where he had had lived at one point and to to the theater school. Just saw the city, got to feel, of course it's different now. But there was a way in which just that sort of being in time and space um, you know, walking from the hospital, going to the hospital where Tanny had been cared for when she was stricken with polio, mm. and walking that back to Balanchine's hotel as he did day after day, and mm. sort of learning what that was like, and noticing that the streets of Copenhagen have the same feel in a certain almost like bourgeois way hmm. as the streets of St. Petersburg with all the canals. So, you know, just walking taught me things. I climbed the stairs of one of his apartments in Paris that the building still existed, you know, around these winding staircases. So I did spend quite a lot of time, you know, doing things like that. It's fascinating as you talk about the critical role that the dancers played in Balanchine's story. I was reading something Lincoln Kirstein said that the dancers are to the choreographer what the dancer's own body is to his or herself. So it's like the dancer can't do their art without their body. And the choreographer can't do his or her work without those dancers. Oh, that I think they're, that's they're part of him in a way. The dancers are really a part of him. So mm-hmm. I think it's perfect that that was the uh, one of the prisms through which you investigated his whole life. Yeah, no, I really saw it that way. I mean, Silas, that's the perfect kind of quote because it brings the you know it brings it close. It brings it close in. I mean, what is a dancer? But the 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 intense. 
um, communication and merging of the mind and body mm. and the, the ways in which that, 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 that wholeness that, that the dancer can feel. And I, I, I was grateful that I had had that experience, however briefly. And I think that helped me to yeah. be able to, to talk to these dancers and understand what they were telling me. And, and as you say, I mean, so many of the dancers, it was like a chorus mm. in many ways for the, the feeling of dancing Valentin's work mm. was just very powerful in their lives. Mm. You know, for all of the difficulties of being a dancer, and, you mm-hmm. know, I, I don't shy away from the difficulties mm-hmm. either because the dancers didn't shy away from telling me about them and... I know myself as well, but that that you know that feeling, if it works, and it doesn't work every night, as we all know, right? It's but indescribable. It's indescribable. When Jerry Coomery was on exactly. this podcast talking about working with Mr. Balanchine on Mozartiana, and she was summing up her work with him and being in the company and dancing the ballets, the word she came to was ineffable. It's yeah. like it's in some realm beyond words. Yeah. A what realm beyond words is yeah. well put. And he would always say, you know, that is, you know, this whole, you and I have talked about this, the spiritual aspect of the work is so powerful. And I tried to spend some time on that because yeah. it seemed to me to be sort of the essence. And I was surprised, yeah. in fact, at how much evidence there was for Balanchine's own um, mystical sensibility right. and his interest in, right. as Lincoln put it, he was an amateur theologian. That's right. You did put that in the book. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, and he read a lot. You know, as we know, he was a deeply religious man, yeah. but it, it wasn't a, a, a sort of standard orthodoxy, hmm. um, even though he was raised in a Russian Orthodox tradition. Well, I'd love to dive into that because you talk about that at such great length, and he did grow up in that Russian Orthodox faith, and in that tradition, there's a great emphasis on icons in the devotional practice. And uh, how did that role of his Orthodox faith and the role of icons play out in his life and spirituality and choreography? Yeah, I mean, I, I came to believe, and I took this um, lead from Lincoln Kirstein, really, who talked about this quite a lot. That you amazing know, essay, a ballet master's belief. Exactly. It's incredible. Exactly. Incredible. And but even Balanchine said it. You know, when he made violin concerto, he said, "It's like a Russian icon, mm. constructed like good architecture, solid, pure. It is good." Mm. So I mean, he too saw the you know the, the the idea of the icon being made by the human hand, but somehow also anonymous and separate from the human touch. Mm. And so the, the thing is not made by God, it's made by man, mm. but it is somehow a connection to God. And the idea of the the flatness of the icon so that, you know, when you when you approach it and you go very close and and if you go into a, a Russian Orthodox church, you will see these worshipers putting their foreheads and mm. and even kissing the icon. And the ways in which this flat surface is a an entry point, hmm. a portal into a world, of, a divine world, and a, a portal that links the living and the dead, mm-hmm. and uh, and also a portal that is constructed differently in a in the sense of, um, say, a painting or a, an image that we might see in a museum. 
um, in, in Western art where, you know, the perspective works and you, you, you look at the painting and you are taken into it by perspective, but the icon does a different thing. It's flat and it, it has what they call inverse perspective. Mm. And it kind of reaches out to you and pulls you in. What I came to see was that the, I mean, the ballets do that. Mm -hmm. You know, he was interested in that flatness of surface, yeah. especially in the more abstract works. Yeah. And the ways in which the dance, you feel that when you're in the audience. Yeah. It, it, you're there, but it, it comes out and reaches you because the dancers are very intimate with you yeah. in his ballets. It's not spectacle no. on the stage. Huh. It's some kind of a, a different kind of relationship. Well, it's fascinating you say audience. that because I instantly jump back to so many ideas from the way the dancers are trained at the School mm. of American Ballet or, or what someone in my generation has absorbed from people who worked with Balanchine and that sense of readiness where the weight is over the balls of the feet. And we even, uh, one of our teachers, uh, Susie Pilar, she always talked about, you always at lining up at the bar, it was like you tried to make your nose touch the person in front of you. So that idea that you're not retreating with your torso held behind your hips, but you're almost like hovering up and over your legs, almost like a relief sculpture. Like you're not inlaid, but you're emerging forward. And that whole idea of being forward and being over the balls of the feet and like ready to pounce, not, not in a state of repose, even if you're in stillness but like the latent energy of being on the balls of the feet and, like you're saying, emerging towards the audience, even in the individual body of the dancer, and then that being multiplied through a ballet where the audience has that sense that it's almost like the whole stage is coming towards coming them, into coming into relief sculpture yeah, towards them. Yeah, no, that's, a, that's an, an amazing description, I think, of what... Balanchine was trying to do when he basically, I mean, not basically, completely reinvented ballet technique. I mean, the whole idea of being on the balls of your feet, as Ready you're saying, pounce. there's yeah. a wonderful sketch that I found in the archive that Tanny Leclerc kept, mm. and it's a sketch of her feet. Mm. And Balanchine made this sketch. He was quite a good artist. Mm. And he, he, he drew the feet and the, he put the, the arrows on the balls of the feet, you know, red arrows where you, you're supposed to have your weight hmm. and, and the heel slightly lifted, hmm. which I know is controversial. In, and in, in how, the, and how in it the, works and how you come through the foot. And how you come through the foot and how you, and so this, but this detail of being on the balls of the feet, as you say, it makes you in, live in the eternal present. It makes you, you're ready. You're right there. You're ready. You can <laughs> right you can move yeah. right away. You're not back watching, as no. you said. You know, you you're in are, the arena. You're in the <laughs> you're arena. In the arena. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And you're ready. It's ready. it's it's Readiness. just like the fourth position with the weight over the front leg with and the, the long back the knee. So you're in the leg you're about to turn on already. Super exactly. balanced. And you can. Arena. It's not wind up and it's then one. turn. You're it, in it. <laughs> it's now. It's go. It's it's such a. A surprise, which yeah. is what life is, yeah. right? Life is a surprise yeah. in every moment. And this whole idea of the eternal present, of being present, not, as he said, you know, wake up, don't 
sleepwalk through life. I mean, this is an old idea that he's getting from from Russian thinkers and mystics, but he brings it straight into the dance studio yeah. and into, as you were saying earlier, into the body of into the dancers, the of the in, dancer. the, in the details of the physical training yeah. that he is... It's not... I don't think he had it in his mind, you know, oh, this is what we're going to do. He made it up with the dancers. In Once again, time. we're at that idea. You know, these classes that he gave, especially in the early 50s, when this is all coming together, the company had been formed, you know, in 48, as we all know. And yep. then the, he, he has this group of dancers that is there and he's going to work with them. And they are working sometimes without music even, mm. because he's so focused on breaking their old habits. And he doesn't want this sort of tinkly ballet music. Mm. He's, he, he wants them uh, focused on what, how are we going to reinvent this technique yeah. so that you're truly present and there's more speed and more life yeah like more more, more right more. i would say it's the, the balancing approach it's kind of like the olympic motto it's swifter higher stronger you know there's this <laughs> yeah. more 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 ah uh, now jennifer he's able to reinvent the technique on so many levels because he had absorbed the classical tradition so deeply so I, I would love to chat with you a little bit about his formation. And um, even before jumping into the, the ballet formation, could you give us some insight about the significance of his birth name, Georgi Melatanovich Balanchivadze? What does that tell us about the man I mean, we know as George Balanchine? It tells us that he's Georgian. <laughs> and you know his family is Georgian. He was born in St. Petersburg in 1904, but his father, uh, Meloton, uh, was Georgian and a composer and very involved, interestingly, in the uh, national movement at the time to bring Georgian musical style, uh, Georgian, the folk songs. He collected folk songs. He collected music from the countryside. He was part of this whole sort of movement to take Georgian culture away from Russian culture and establish mm. it as an uh, its own distinct thing. Mm. So, you know, he wasn't against Russia and he mm. went to uh, St. Petersburg when he was a young man to study with Rimsky-Korsakov, mm. who was also involved in this kind of um, back-to-the-people movement. Mm. And balancing the Georgianness of his background through his father, he embraced. Mm. He, and especially in the years after the revolution, he, this, because he hated the Bolsheviks. Mm. So this was his idea of Russia. This was his idea of where he came from. Mm. And I think Georgian music with its polyphonic and very mm. complex, I mean, if you ever go to a Georgian church and listen to the the music, it's extremely complex and interesting, and I try to go into that a little bit in, yeah. in the book, but he was raised with that, you mm. know, playing, singing, listening, um, all of that was very present in his mind, and I think his father was a, a big, big figure in his, his childhood, even though 
he didn't know him that well because he left home. He was gone by the time he was 10. To ballet school. To ballet school, yeah. And what should we know about Maria, his mother? So his mother, um, who, as Elizabeth Kendall will tell you, is a very uh, sort of mysterious figure. Von Almedingen or something, the background. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. A name, you know, not not dissimilar to Karen von Arlendingen. Right, And I think, you know, a certain kind of, some kind of German background we don't really know. I um, did not find anything more than Elizabeth had found. I think she's just, I mean, boy, we both tried. I mean, there are, she's, an, an, she's elusive an elusive woman. figure. Um, but, but clearly from a, some kind of a, you know, we know she's from a, a sort of lower bourgeois family, that there's a, she, she has what Balanchine said about her, which is that she was very soft. Hmm. I suppose the way to start, really, is that bef- just before he was born, his mother won the lottery. Mm-hmm. This is extraordinary. You know, they weren't wealthy people. And it's not even clear that they were married. Hmm. Balanchine was born illegitimate, legitimate, as were his siblings. And Melaton had another family back in Georgia. So there's a very complicated uh, origin moment for mm-hmm. Balanchine. Mm-hmm. And the lottery made them rich. All of a sudden. All of a sudden. (laughs) And so, you know, new apartment, uh, horse and carriage, um, nannies, wet nurses, all of these things. That So he grew up in in a way in a fantasy Hmm. in these early years. And then a fantasy which crashed because his father... You know, just lost the money very quickly through various business dealings. Yeah. He was a composer. He wasn't meant to be doing this. Um, and they and they he spent part of his childhood in in Finland in this, and and in his account of it, which I I found some wonderful tapes mm. that uh, interviews with him when he talks about his childhood. And he talks about it in these kind of, you know, bucolic Mm. terms. He's living in Finland with his mother and maybe a couple of aunts here and there. And his father is off uh, because he had to go to debtor's prison because he he spent this lottery money and then overspent it. Um, and and there's this sense of this this sort of world of women with great food. They're in the countryside. They're not. It's not a moneyed world anymore. But it's one full of music and um, exploration in the countryside and eating and. Um, you know, some of those recipes are still things that he that he made in New York in later years. And wow. So, you know, there, there's something about that imperial world that was his very early life that completely stayed with him. And I think, hmm. you know, Petipa, who mm-hmm. you also mentioned, mm-hmm. is... Is, is part of that because mm-hmm. when he first arrives at the theater school mm-hmm. at, at the age of 10 and, you know, he's not happy to be there because he's sort of, as he says, they dropped me there. They left me like a dog. Like a dog. <laughs> I mean, he, he, years and decades later, he remembered it with... Quite viscerally, yeah. Yeah, quite, quite painful experience to be, you know, as he felt abandoned there. His mother, of course, was and his father were just trying to give him a better life. Yeah. This was a way up yeah, into the, the imperial the court. theater school, yeah. Yeah, into the imperial court. So, I mean, Petipa was part of that imperial memory, too. And mm. he, as you say, I mean, 
he absorbed Petipa in the same way that you absorbed Balanchine. Mm. I mean, he, it was in his body, mm. anchored there just mm-hmm. by virtue of his training and the dances that he danced in the Mariinsky Theater. I love the way you describe it. You say that Petipa was an anchor dropped into the body of the young Georgi. Exactly, I love that. Exactly, right? I mean, yeah. it, it was just, it was a, a place he could always go to. So even though he then set his life on a course of, of remaking, extending, in some ways, um, at times, completely leaving behind. Overturning. Yeah, some t- overturning, in some, sometimes in, in violent ways <clears throat> almost, <clears throat> the Petipa tradition. He was also anchored to it right. and returned to it. Again and again. Again and again. Diamonds, Tchaikovsky Piano Concerto Number 2, Theme and Variations. So much. Petty Pop keeps going. He, he resurfaces in Balanchine's imagination. He definitely again resurfaces. And, again. and that, but resurfaces, but remade. Exactly. The remade Petty Pop. You exactly. know, the Petty Pop through, just as, as Petty Pop remade. Right. What he Dance as well in his own time. Well, and Jennifer, you talk in your book about how Balanchine had a kind of ledger of memories with the imperial Russian era that you're now describing on one side and then the revolutionary revolutionary Russian era uh, contrasting on the other side. Could you share more yeah, about that no, idea? I, I mean, that's that such ledger. a good way of putting it because I just, I came away feeling that when he left Russia in 1924 for Berlin, mm like so many people were leaving Russia in the years after the revolution, Mm. that he took two things with him. One was this imperial legacy that we were just talking about, and Petipa is a way of summing it up in a way. And then the other is an equally strong and almost opposing Mm. revolutionary impulse, because in the Mm. years after the war, the first world outbreak of the First World War and the revolution, I mean, his life was upended and violently upended. And he positioned himself eventually on, you know, as he became an adult, on the side of the avant-garde and mm. of the, as what he called progressive mm. dance. He wanted to make, pull dance into the modern world. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't, you know, interested in repeating Petipa or in repeating anything that had been done in the past. He, he was, you know, we shot the past. He would quote the poet Mayakovsky. Mm. We shot the past. Mm. All is new. Stop and marvel. Mm. So there was this mm. imperial past mm. on the one part. In one part in of one him. In one part of him. And yeah. then there was this force to move forward yeah. and, in fact, reject that. Yeah and find something new on the other. So he's working with all of this. The whole way through. Yeah, all, the, the whole, whole way, way through. through his life. Right. The whole way through his life. And yeah. you could, I mean, not like you would categorize the ballets to one category or another, but you could just think through where the, like, petty pas reverence emerges on the one side and the advance guard emerges on the other. It's like the agon on the same program with demon variations. Yeah. You know, or the episodes on the same program with, you know, Ramonda variations. Exactly. It's like they both live inside of him. And the ways in which these two things influence each other. Yeah. So they're not always, I think, in in opposition. No. They actually feed each other. Right. Because you look at the steps in either one and like he's he's stretching the classical framework in the theme and variations and he's and he's actually very classical in agon he just flexes a foot here or there or pulls the attitude a little further up or around than it had been before but it's it's absolute classical vocabulary 
you talk a little bit about Meyerhold, and you had this phrase about the denuding of theater. I just wanted you to talk a little bit about that and how that relates to the kind of stripping down that you see in some later Balanchine work. Yeah, I mean, the thing about the revolution is that, you know, it brings to the fore in Russia, it unleashes an artistic revolution, Hmm. truly. I mean, with the beginnings of abstraction, the, you know, which come even before the revolution, the the idea of the body as machine, the idea Hmm. of the nude body, the Hmm. idea of, of theater completely... Um, recalibrated and, and, you know, as you say, Mayor Holden, the quote that you give of the denuding of theater mm-hmm. and the ways in which you can strip the stage and, mm-hmm. and the ways in which you can, you know, he was very interested in approaching the body through, you know, what he came to call biomechanics. And, mm-hmm. I mean, the basic idea was we don't have to make feeling and meaning always by going inside our psychology and Mm. saying, oh, I have to, you know, in a kind of like Stanislavski way saying, you know, let me recall a moment when I was very upset as a child so that I can channel that into this moment. Exactly. Mm. Let's start with the body itself. Mm. Let's start with the movement and see what that creates in and of itself Mm. inside so that the, the origin point is do it, right? Not endlessly analyze it not endlessly analyze yeah it. yeah and it's not unanalytical but no, it, but no. it's as you were saying with the heels off the the, 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 the we awaited balls the balls of the, feet. the feet you know yeah. it's not that it's not involved in its own physical detail but it's also it's, it's starting with the body hmm. that's powerful yeah and so i think you know he is just I came to see him as somebody, he was a very quiet person. I mean, people, you know, who, I mean, not quiet in the sense that he didn't talk, he could talk yeah, a lot, yeah, but yeah. not somebody whose ego is front and center. He, he was watching. Mm. He watched. He watched. He watched. His brother described him as, you know, a child, as that guy in the corner, that kid in the corner during the party who didn't want to talk and would cry if you, if you pulled him out and made him the center of attention. Mm. He didn't want that. He was watching. And so he watched the entire, you know, revolutionary art pass before him, and he experimented with a mm-hmm. lot of it. So he was absorbing mm-hmm. all of these things, and this was material for the rest of his life. Right. And you... And you um you talk about a lot of those influences. What were some of those non-dance artistic works, be they literary or musical, that were also part of this absorption in these formative years for Balanchine? Yeah, you know, this was something that, in fact, you know, went against the, the sort of image of Balanchine that I at least had been given. And he, he even says it, you know, he makes his own myth at times as well. You know, I'm not an intellectual. I don't, I, I'm, I don't read. I'm not a... I'm not a words person. I, I only know how to, you know, I'm a sensual person. I, I work with the senses. I work with with bodies. Um, I have instinct. No. I mean, the man read a lot. That's what was one of the main takeaways I had from your book is that was something that I had never really been exposed to in the different balancing research I've done through the years is that the, 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 all the constant reading and yeah. his own kind of scholarship throughout his whole journey. His curiosity, yeah. his vast range. I mean, reading from, um, you know, the as we were talking about, the amateur theologian and, and reading from the Bible, which he knew very, very well. And, uh, you know, straight through Nietzsche, Hegel, Soloviev, 
Alexander Bloch, the poet, mm. Mayakovsky, uh, he loved to quote this idea, this Mayakovsky poem, A Cloud in Trousers, which we can talk about if you want. Sure. And, you know, but then, you know, moving into, you know, Shakespeare, Goethe, um, Spinoza. <laughs> I, I mean, it's just, it, it goes on and on. And knowing it, the ballets, it, you had catch on. It's like, oh, Faust, that's Valpurgis Nacht all those years later. And the Shakespeare, that's Midsummer Night's Dream when he gets to America. Exactly. All Quixote, those layers. Cervantes. Cervantes. You know, it, he is Don Quixote. He's just, um, he's he's voracious in hmm. his in his reading. And it's it's a kind of compendium of... I mean, I guess I think of dance and sometimes as having the potential to be um, also intellectual history. And Balanchine, you know, there is a, there are ideas mm-hmm. in movement, even mm-hmm. if the movement is not about words. Mm-hmm. And, and even if it is expressing things that we don't know how to express in other ways, mm-hmm. you know, what Balanchine liked to call after a German idea, you know, without why. Mm-hmm. There's no, like, well, like, don't try to explain it. With mm. words, you won't get there. Mm. It's not about words. Mm. It's about the body. It's about doing. It's about things you can't express with words. When this touches on, I think it's in the early chapters where you talk about the theater as being a realer than real world for Balanchine. And it's like the theatrical work, the choreography, the ballets, it's not like in a, it's not less than our day to day. It's like more real than real. That yeah. kind of exploration. I'd love to hear you talk some about that too. I want to read you a quote. Of course. If I can. Absolutely. Here's something that he said that I found extremely interesting. He described what what he was doing um, in the theater and with the dancers in making this realer than real world mm-hmm. that he and so many of the dancers described, mm-hmm. you know, as a bit more than the third dimension, little above. We have something. We're talking about certain ideas that are more interesting than what to eat or how to travel. You see, a little bit higher than other people, you see, because our life is different and we are different animals, you see. Mm. That's one thing. And Mm. then the other thing that I thought I would read you is, he said at another point, it is impossible to explain certain things that are not related to regular life. You see, what we are trying to do, we try to explain certain things that are unexplainable. We always want to know how much it weighs, what it costs, how should it be done, and so forth. But there is another thing which is very important that is not made of the material. It is made of something, but it doesn't belong to this world, you see. The real world is not here. It is the spirit. Beautiful. Metaphysical is the real one. Wow. So I think that was the, yeah. that's the idea of this realer than real world, this experience that so many dancers have yeah. that, you know, my most alive life is on stage. Hmm. And that's this, this idea we were talking about earlier of trying to make a body that is more alive mm-hmm. than a regular body. Mm-hmm. You know, you're trying to find a way to... Basically, um, in the moments that you're dancing, completely defy death because mm. you have such life. Mm. And this is what you leave the theater feeling like, oh, my God, mm-hmm. it's so amazing. Mm-hmm. Well, because you look at what the dancers do and it's not like, oh, the body's not made to do that. It's like, no, the body can do that. The it's bo- like supernatural. 
It's like you go to hear the opera singer. It's like that's a human voice. The voice can do that. You're aiming for this thing that is more than that is metaphysical, yeah. and yet you're you're anchoring the it physical. exactly. <laughs> your 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 instrument yeah. is is purely physical. So yeah. you're you're on the ground with the body, yeah. right? But able to then connect to and express something that is even beyond the body. It's you're, in the flesh. Yeah, that's so powerful. that the flesh itself, the flesh, the bone, the muscles. Yeah. These things that are being shaped and moved by, uh, by training yeah. are shaping and moving the inner life as well. Yeah. The ballet as a physical and spiritual practice. Yeah. You know, that whole idea. Oh, my gosh. This directly connects to this concept of bit. Is that the way to say it? And how Balanchine's life's work is kind of a mission to counter bit. Could you talk more about that? Yeah, I thought this that was is so a Russian idea. I, I'm, uh, I'm also very poor Russian translation, wit, something, wit, okay. wit, something like go. that. Yeah. Um, but it's this, this, this Russian word um, that describes um, this sort of stultifying, almost crippling stagnation of e- everydayness. You know, hmm. it's sort of the sleepwalking as people who were interested in this, and Mayakovsky was one of them, too. You know, Mayakovsky described wit as, uh, he said, it's motionless, like a horse that can't be spurred and stands still. Slits of wit were filled with fat and coagulation. I mean, he has a disgust of it, Mm. you know, and I think, um, you know, people sleepwalk through life. They need to wake up. This is this whole idea of of creating something that is more than the everyday. So, you know, Balanchine's not alone in this. He's, mm. there's, a, there's a whole uh, movement in this Russian moment to, to sort of find ways to make art that is going to enliven the human being and the human spirit mm. and sort of create a revolution of the spirit. Yeah. Is yeah. really what it is. You know, I mean, again, Mayakovsky, I, I just, his poetry is, is quite something. And hmm. he says, soon there will be no more death and the dead will be resurrected. And he was clear that this meant like the flesh and blood body too. This is not just spirit. This hmm. is the body, right? Hmm. How can bodiless beings have a heart? My eyes are fixed earthward. This herd of the bodiless, how they bore me. Hmm. So you know he's this is this interest in in really in the the spiritual potential of human flesh and bone. We're, wow. we're always there again. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. That's fast. I mean, it makes me think about that wonderful quote, Balanchine's um, uh, reflections on the dance element in Stravinsky's music. This is in Dance Index in like the '40s, and he says that you know I don't get it when people describe my work as abstract. He goes, because what you what you see before you is dancers of flesh and blood in a living relationship to each other. Right. What you see is completely real. And he's always coming back to that. How did Balanchine come to leave Russia? And then what were some of the lessons that he learned in his brief time in Weimar, Germany, before the better known Ballet Russe period of his of his journey? I mean, look, his departure from Russia is something that is, it's like all of the departures in his life. And he was a very, he was someone who knew how to act in the moment. Mm. And 
I think he sensed that, well, sensed, it was obvious. I mean, he had been through war and revolution. He had been, you know, he had spent a childhood as somebody who was scarred by starvation and by, you know, he had TB and he had boils all over his body and he he was cold and freezing and, you know, and then the whole revolutionary period, the chaos of that and the excitement of the artistic moment, but also the hardship of yeah. life and the uncertainty of life and the growing violence of life. I mean, it was already violent, of course, in the war and revolution, but then when, you know, I mean, this is Lenin's death and we're, we're he almost always seems to get out just before things get even worse. Mm. You know, Stalin's about to come to power. And he has some personal experiences that kind of alert him to this. And he decides to take up a, an offer to go to Europe for a tour with some other dancers. Do they know that they'll never come back? I think they probably did know. Do we have evidence of that? We don't really exactly, but mm. in, in a way, it doesn't matter. They went, and they never, and, they ne- and most, the most, most of them never yeah. came back and never went back. And you know, he ends up in Berlin, and you know, this is not an uncommon path. I mean, you know, as one uh, another Russian writer described it as the the Russian refugee republic. That's mm. what Berlin had become by, by mm. 1924. Mm. There were so many Russians flooding into, into, the, into Western Europe through wow. Berlin wow. Um, and other points too, but Berlin was a big one. So Balanchine's there, and he is again. We don't know much about that period, and the way I handled that in the book was to try to evoke what was going on in the artistic life of Berlin that he would have... Uh, scene and we and that we sort of know he saw by reading backwards from his hmm. future work hmm. by reading backwards from for example seven deadly, seven sins, deadly sins exactly break yeah so you know but it's this other you know he's moving from one uh, sort of lawless artistic moment into another I mean Weimar Germany where <laughs> everything is open and free and mm. it's like and it's all about sex and, mm. and the erotic mm. and mm. Um, you know, the nude body and the um, and experimentation. Mm. And I mean, this is where, to, you know, this is the beginnings of atonal music. This is the beginnings of so many things that he was he was seeing, even even things that we don't think of later. But like, like the um, the the review lines. <laughs> it's, the, it's like the curtain goes up on Symphony in Three Movements. Exactly, <laughs> it's right? It's the same idea. You know, these lines of yeah. women that actually comes from a military idea of the the, the review of soldiers. The, hmm. uh, the line of soldiers and the sergeant or whatever, the general passing in Which front. Which has some cool resonances because Stravinsky talks about the first movement of Symphony in Three being... Uh, at least resonant with him watching newsreel footage of Nazi soldiers goose-stepping. Exactly. And you, I mean, it's, it's an intense image, yeah. but you really hear that in the in this kind of severity of those opening strains of Symphony in Three Movements, for yeah, sure. Yeah, completely.
something like that line yeah. at the beginning of Superman three has has resonances going back, as you say, to mm-hmm. both musically and visually. Yeah to all kinds of Very cultural references, moment. especially in Germany, both in this Weimar period and then in the Nazi period that followed. You know, so it's, he took so much. When we had Bart Cook on this podcast talking about Jerome Robbins' glass pieces, he talked about that quality of Balanchine's, of absorbing, absorbing cultures, absorbing artistic lineages, absorbing cultural traditions, absorbing musical ideas, and they're all just getting put into the into the mix yeah, I mean, of his think labor, about it. of you his know, creativity. In 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 some kind of like um simplistic summary, yeah. right? It's like Imperial Russia, revolutionary Russia. Yeah. Then he's out. Yeah. Then he's and in he's Weimar in, Germany. And he's in Weimar Germany. Getting more ingredients. Then he's in Paris in the twenties and all over Europe yeah. in the twenties. Yeah. Then in nineteen thirty three, yeah. just as Hitler's coming to powder, he's he out, out again. He gets out. And he's in America. It's, you you really highlight in the, that, the highlight that period. in the book and it's quite striking. Yeah. It's like right before the curtain falls on one era, he's in his next act in the next venue. And he's swallowed it whole mm. and he gets and then he gets out. So he's able to he just absorbs so much. He's got so much material inside him. And yeah. it's not that he just reproduces it. He obviously... It refracts through him and he has his own kind of divine deposit of creativity and, and synthesis power yeah, to then yeah. be able and to he, bring it all together. And it goes together. through music. And yeah. then it, 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 you know, like any art, it's, it's as you, you put it so well. So it, it's just that he has the 20th century inside him or, yeah. or his version of the 20th century. And then... It, it comes out in myriad ways on the stage, values. and and not all of his works are great. Let's no, be clear. No, sure, but Plenty he's of always messes, exploring. But he's always exploring, and he was really out there on the edge. And we sometimes forget that because the ballets that have survived, you know, the maybe seventy-five or so that of, are in the of trust the 400 and of the four hundred and twenty, four hundred and something. Yeah, yeah. Are are um, you know there was lots of work that didn't that didn't stand the test of time. In that same way, yeah, and, or that was just simply through, just simply forgotten. Yeah, because as we know, ballets are <laughs> it's forgotten. Ephemeral, ephemeral. Now, I, the the ballet Russe period with Balanchine is pretty well known. But are there any particular insights or lessons you would want to share with us about Balanchine's time as ballet master and choreographer for Diaghilev? I mean, look, Balanchine said it himself. Diaghilev was crucial. Yeah. And, and you know, d- crucial artistically because building on the theme we were just saying, you know, here, here Balanchine encountered Picasso, because Matisse, Guerin, Ravel. Um, I mean, he just, Stravinsky, yeah. he, this, this opened his world yeah. and gave him an enormous education. Yeah. And Diaghilev gave him an education, not only in contemporary um, art, but also by taking him to museums and sitting him down in front of paintings and, you know, making him, he really gave him an education. And Mm -hmm. he also showed him, and I think this is important, Mm -hmm. what it means to build and run a company. Mm. So this idea of company. Artistic direction. Artistic direction and and a group of people that you have to galvanize towards a cause and you have to also make it work in a system that doesn't ne- isn't going to necessarily give it state support. Yeah. I mean Diaghilev was a real entrepreneur and had uh, you know as we know and and yeah. and Balanchine s- saw from the inside how that worked. Mm. So I think all of that was was hugely influential to him. Yes. 
And it gave him an opportunity to just, you know, like Diaghilev couldn't get enough. You know, can you do this opera? Can you do this ballet? Yeah. Can you do, have Turn out the ballet. You... <laughs> right. And like, yeah. you know. The volume. Now, now, now. Go, go, go. Yeah, right? yeah, We yeah. were talking about earlier. Exactly. Just go. Just go. Make it happen. <laughs> and Balanchine had that capacity. Well, and it's interesting because then you fast forward to like that wonderful part in the book where you talk about the 72 Stravinsky Festival. And with great respect to the production team, Balanchine goes up to the fourth floor right here in this theater. He's like looking at them deliberating about the production. He said, you discuss I'll do. And he goes up to the main hall and makes multiple ballets at once. But he'd been doing the multiple ballets at once since Diaghilev, at least. Exactly. So he was like, he had been, he had been trained to have a lot of different irons in the fire at the same time artistically. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, I mean, let's be clear, too, because it's sometimes, you know, you get the feeling that Balanchine would just walk into a room and, and uh, you know, with no notes, and there would be steps would just pour out of him and uh, whole dances would pour out of him. But his preparation was intense. And we could talk about that even now, because I'm sure much of that must have even begun in that Diaghilev period, oh, working sure. with Stravinsky and Apollo, this and that. But you have the wonderful quote in the book where he says, I don't listen to music, I read music. Yeah. And I, this is just an aside, and then I want to hear your insights about this, but when Jerry Kumery was on this podcast talking about the choreography process for the minuet of Mozartiana, I think it was one or two rehearsals, and she said he just went four bars at a time, four bars at a time, four bars at a time. She said they were in the practice room upstairs. Boom, 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 boom. Because he, he had that music in, in, his, in his bones, and he'd already done four versions of it by that point, too. But because the music was so deep, that was such a big part of how the steps just flowed out. Exactly. The research and I the mean, understanding the research the and music. understanding, uh, basically a lifetime of, mm. of studying music. I mean, he was, as we know, a trained musician, and he continued to educate himself. You know, he even when he arrived in New York in the, in the 30s, he would ask Nabokov, he yeah. would ask him, you know, uh, can you give me a lesson in counterpoint? Can you, you know, I mean, there's a whole document in the archive about all the things that he learned. Wow. Uh, he was constantly trying to learn. And we have, you know, his transcriptions and his, he would sit for hours at home with a pencil and, you know, really, you know, transcribing music. He didn't listen on a phonograph, as you were saying. He read the music. And even, I love this image that I, I found this image of him lying in bed with a, you know, like, like the rest of us would be reading some good novel or something, you know, before bed. And he's got a score. Mm. And he's reading this score. Mm. I mean, I think for him a score was just a... Um, it, I mean, he could he could enter that world in the way a conductor could, and yeah. he did conduct at yeah. times. Yeah. So the the musical preparation was often um, months, even years long before he would go into a studio. Wow. And the dancers didn't see that; they saw it in the in the ways that you were just describing. Like he could go four bars by four bars by yeah, four bars, yeah. over and over again. It was described to me how he would walk into the studio, you know, roll up roll his up sleeves, sleeves, you know, Let's get to work. and then and then go to the piano, mm. and a few words with Gordon or with the pianist yeah. or with Copakin in, in the early days. in the early days, and you know, <laughs> pictures of him working with Stravinsky. They're all next At right the by the piano. Yeah, and so this sort of triangle between the piano yeah. the, and the, yeah. the, 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 music the music and the dancers and then his position 
watching the whole whatever was being whatever they were making together yeah so i mean I, at times i think he knew exactly what he wanted but at other times and especially with uh, sort of soloist and principal roles he he was depending a lot on the dancers the dancers had enormous input into mm. what the form of yeah. the of the music would take yeah that's powerful. That's powerful. I mean, and this is this is where he meets Stravinsky is in this in this Diaghilev period. And um, are there any you know moments or, or or nuances of that first Stravinsky collaboration, you know, Jean de Rossignol, and then Apollo that you would want to draw out for us? It's funny as you ask that the image that comes to my mind yeah. is the one of Stravinsky in the rehearsal hall, just. Like sitting down at the piano and playing, and Balanchine saying, "Oh, that's the tempo," <laughs> yeah. and, um, and, and Stravinsky insisting, you know, and then Diaghilev coming in and oh, saying, "This is wrong." That's oh, the <laughs> so. Then you know, being not in between. that confident at the time, you know, he went back to Diaghilev's tempo, and then Stravinsky comes in and says, "You know, is enraged. Like I told you, what you know." So there's this this sense, I think, that he's learning his relationship to the composer and yeah. to the to the music is paramount yeah. and that that's that's kind of where the that's where the buck stops yeah right yeah and and it's and it's in the kind of um it's in the kind of collapse of that ballet russe world with diaghilev's death that then balanchine has this bout with tuberculosis and then lincoln <laughs> so it's like, it's like how would how can you how can you lead us through that kind of cataclysmic shift of on so many levels? Yeah, I mean, look, ba- Diaghilev's death for so many people, um, and especially for the dancers, and certainly for Balanchine, was just a moment of uh, the whole world disintegrated. Like, yeah, the whole world disintegrated exactly. You know, and there's a <clears throat> there's a vacuum there, yeah. and Balanchine was very clear, I think, from the beginning that he didn't want to redo Diaghilev. He wasn't going to then use what he knew to revive any Diaghilev productions. He wanted, again, where, you know, all is new, stop and marvel, right? Mm. He was he was on to the next. Mm. But he was stricken at that moment, again, with his TB, which had been latent. And this is a man who struggled with various physical ailments his whole life. I mean, he was both very strong in the sense that he survived them all and also very vulnerable Mm. to fear and his own physical fragility. Mm. And the the TB moment, you know, he ends up in a Swiss sanatorium, uh, like a magic mountain place. And really, he should have died. Mm. And he quite courageously refuses the treatment that's offered to him because he says, I've watched people die from that treatment. You know, by by refusing treatment, you might die too. So, you know, instead, I mean, he just, um, he ate butter. He wanted to, he thought if he gained weight, it would help him. So he would just like (sighs) eat butter by the tablespoon. And he was there alone, though, very sad, very hard, you know, letters that we have that he wrote, just an intense loneliness, Mm -hmm. intense loneliness, and a feeling of of abandonment. I mean, he was married to Danilova at the time. I have no evidence that she ever made it there. Mm. 
Um, their marriage was already not marriage. There was a common law marriage, but you know their their relationship was already on its way out. So it's a difficult period for him. But it also then you know once he comes down from the mountain back to Paris. Yeah. Um, where, where, whereas I understand that Lefar had then taken on the leadership of Paris Opera and wouldn't let Balanchine into the theater, and so he had to go elsewhere. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he's he's sort of disappointed at every turn, and, and nothing works out. I mean, we could go into the details, but it's just one of those periods which he he has for a long time in his life, you know, after Diaghilev's death, when company after company after company fold. Yeah. And so he starts Les Ballets 1933, which, you know... Lasts. Edward James's wedding gave his birthday gift to his wife. Exactly. Another one of these sort <laughs> so of vanity bizarre. companies. Yeah. And, and he's subject to the, to the whims of a wealthy person, and he, he hates that. Mm. He makes him pay amazing work, including Seven Deadly Sins. And, and the first version of Mozartiana. The first version of Mozartiana. Which he revisits, what, you know, almost 50 years later. Exactly. And Lincoln Kirstein is in Paris at these times. Lincoln Kirstein, who has his own story, you know, which we can get into. We must. But because uh, <laughs> when I love because Lincoln and I've said it on this podcast, Lincoln has this great quote where he says, "I have always found myself to be chronologically in luck." <laughs> Isn't that great? Yeah, and that there is he great. is. Mr. And B. there he is. I mean, but he's <clears throat> there also because he knows what he he's wants for. to pursue. And, I mean, Lincoln, uh, through the experiences of his own life, you know, sort of from a, a wealthy Boston uh, Jewish emigre German family, uh, his father was one of the, the founders of Filene's department store, and that's where the money came from. And so, you know, he's a guy who wants to be an artist, wants to be a writer, wants to be, um, he's brilliant. He could be anything. Yeah, he was a- Genius. And he can't quite find his place, and he becomes obsessed with dance. And I attribute this in part to his own physical form, which is sort of huge and hulking and something he can't quite master. Mm. Uh, he can master so many things, but his body, and he becomes very interested in the body and the human form and in dance. Yep. And, um, you know, his accomplishments obviously range from, you know, being somebody who's a precursor to the Museum of Modern Art, to literary accomplishments. Um, but there he is in Paris, following Diaghilev, summer after summer, wanting, wanting to teach himself about dance, giving himself an education in dance. And, you know, he's trying to make himself into the American Diaghilev. He wants to bring, he sees an opening. Yeah. Ballet doesn't have a big presence in the United States. It's huge in Europe. Yeah. It's huge in Russia. It's got enormous potential. It's on the forefront of the avant-garde. He wants to bring that to America, and he needs someone to help him do it. And he targets, eventually, Balanchine. And so he basically introduces himself. They meet, and he says, would you like to come to Hartford, Connecticut? to start a ballet company where there's a museum run by a pal of Chick his. Austin. By Chick Austin. Yeah, at the, at the Wadsworth Athenaeum, a, a friend of his from Harvard. Right. And from this whole idea that museums can become sort of palaces of culture right. and include not only art, but also theater and music and film. And, yeah. um, and he's going to build the dance part around Balanchine and Chick Austin is on board. And 
And, you know, I mean, Balanchine, I, it's amazing to think about it. Think about this meeting, the two of them sitting there. And Balanchine's still tubercular. He's, mm. wheezing, he's wheezing away. Lincoln thinks, has been told by other people, he's got two years to live, this guy that you're targeting. And he, Lincoln's like, okay, well, we can do a lot in two years. You know, he believes in Balanchine. He sees the talent. And again, another moment for Balanchine. He could stay in Paris. He's got papers by now. Yep. Don't forget, he was stateless when he left Russia. Wow. He right. had no right to be anywhere. Right. He had an Anson passport. And he's, the, he's by now got his French papers. He could stay. Yeah. He's known. He could make a life. Lincoln says, come with me to Hartford, Connecticut, which, you know, Lincoln pulls out a map and shows him where it is. And he says, yes. He says, yes. What a leap. Oh, what a, what a leap. And, and he makes it. He gets on the boat and he goes. Here ends part one. My conversation with Jennifer Homans will continue in part two, which will be available soon. To learn more about George Balanchine and Jennifer Homans, please consult the reading list that can be found in the notes for this podcast episode. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you'll join me again to hear the dance. Thank you.